Thank you so much. Good morning. All present in this building and for those on our and growing live stream as well, wonderful to be with you this morning. As we're turning in our Bibles now to Acts chapter 15, and we're going to be looking today at verse 1 down through verse 11, continuing in the book of Acts, which we began a series back in September of 2019, and love to get a sense of where we're at geographically, uh, because the book of Acts is such an extraordinary geographical book. So let's take a look at a picture, too, to get our bearings. First of all, Antioch, in terms of the way things would have been. There's an archaeological discovery regard to the whole area of the synagogue, and you can see where a lot of things were occurring, where the Apostle Paul was, was ministering. Antioch then, Antioch today, and here we find ourselves now once in a time, it was Antioch, Syria today, southern portion of uh, Turkey, where the story of the Apostle Paul is for the most part forgotten there, but remembered around the world. Getting our bearings now, we're in Acts chapter 15. Today we're looking at verse 1, down through verse 11, and reading from the English Standard Version. Luke Physician now wrote these words. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers, the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God knows the heart, bore witness to them, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear 
But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Just as they will. So we're going to be exploring these verses this morning. We're calling this grace on trial. Because now a pivotal point has taken place in the early church. A church at cutting edge. Gospels expanding. Gospel is moving forward, and the evil one now has made his way in covertly rather than overtly, and now he's going to disrupt the whole process of trying to communicate the essence of what salvation's all about. We're going to explore this together. But first of all, we're going to look to the Lord together in prayer. Now, Father, what we're asking now is that you speak to us at a point of need whether it be physically present in this building in one of these services, with social distancing being maintained, or the live stream that is now unfolding before us, asking that there's this sense of oneness, a sense that we are together, working the Holy Spirit in various settings, whether it be in this building or a home right now and county, or other settings in other states across the country and beyond. Speak now at points of need. So, Father, looking into grace, important subject, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. So again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Great book. So you've been reading in Pilgrim's Progress, and you reach a particular point in that incredible book. And there is the main person, we know him as Christian, or the Pilgrim. But it's not immediately apparent what his original name was, is it? But there is this moment in the story where the name first appears. Pilgrim is having a conversation, you see, with the porter. And porter asks, and just, what is your name? And Pilgrim responds, my name is now Christian, but my name at the first was graceless. You and I come into this world physically alive, but spiritually dead. We need a second birth. And that birth does not come on the basis of our works because those would be dead works. Rather, it comes on the basis of Christ's work, validated three days later by being raised from the dead, a living work. And so what you and I are now finding is that a collision course has found itself right there in the midst of the church of Antioch. Antioch, cutting-edge church, 
international church, diverse ethnicities. Why, if you read in Acts chapter 13, the opening verses, check out some of the names of the leaders in that church. Come from various settings, various skin tones. But there is a oneness, you see, to that church and is found in their dynamic relationship with the risen Savior and Jesus Christ. Saved by grace through the finished work of Christ. What is interesting in that setting is that it brings together uncircumcised Gentile believers with circumcised Jewish believers. And they are one people before God, not two. And so in a culture and a world that seems to fragment and to divide, here is firsthand evidence of how one unites and connects that in the midst of ethnic diversities, here then is biblical unity, and it is rooted in true grace, good grace, as we've just sung. What I want to do is to explore this notion that Christian brought to the forefront in that dialogue with Porter. What's your name? My name is now Christian. But my name at the first was Graceless. And to draw out for those that might, in fact, be tuning in right now, who might find themselves in a state of gracelessness, what it takes by the work of Jesus Christ, putting faith and trust in him alone, to experience good grace, true grace, real grace, which is unmerited favor secured by Christ's work on the cross. Say, two recommendations that come out of these 11 verses as you and I check out now the Jerusalem Council is found here. Two recommendations on what to say, how to proceed when you are finding yourself being opposed by those who argue against the real essence of salvation, the core of grace. The first is out of verses 1 through 5. Number one, when the essence of salvation is being opposed, recommendation one, respond to the opponents of God's grace wisely. I want you to see the wisdom here that begins to make its way through the course of these verses that Luke is unpacking for us. You pick it up now in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea. That would have been highly significant to the people in Antioch. That's the region. That was the epicenter, you see, where all things happened pertaining to Jesus Christ. What do these men have to say? What are their emphases? What is their core teaching? They came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, let's take a good look at the map again, get our bearings, trying to get a sense of 
of where they're coming from. And here you have Jerusalem here, thinking topographical right now. They're going to make their way towards Antioch. Antioch, Syria, now portion of Turkey. It was here that Paul had launched his first significant missionary journey and made his way into this region of Turkey. Powerful impact. Comes back now to this dynamic church. Variety of ethnic groups reports in. And he is strengthening them in the grace found in Jesus Christ. But there are false teachers tracking who want to offer an alternative to grace. What was true then is true today. What they're going to attempt to do is to supplement grace, saying in essence, subtly, that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was insufficient. So you need to add your works to Christ's work. Now, throughout the course of history, there are what I will call the additionists and those who are what I call the subtractionists. The additionists want to add to the cross. The subtractionists want to take from the cross. What the believer does is to realize that real grace, true grace, good grace is found in Christ's work and in Christ's work alone and our works neither add to nor subtract from what Jesus Christ did. The challenge is, is that these people come from a very strategic setting just outside Jerusalem. And so now the eyebrows are being raised as they arise. What do they have to say? That's an important setting. These could be very well be important people. Listen to what they're saying. Unless you are circumcised, you're back to the text now. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. You cannot be saved. In other words, they are using a religious argument against real grace. Now, just because it's a religious argument does not mean it is a valid argument. And just because somebody is using Scripture does not mean that the Scripture being used is a valid application for the argument. The evil one used Scripture in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So it's very important we understand that there are tendencies throughout history of what we will call Scripture twisting. And we've got to make clear within our own minds the validity of what the person is doing when they make application to the argument that they're attempting to support. Throughout the Older Testament, you will find again and again and again, God saved people by grace, not by works. Melchizedek and then Genesis chapter 14, and there's the Gentile Jethro in the book of Exodus onwards, you see, to that point when Jonah is going to have to proclaim God's grace to the people in Nineveh. Grace abounds throughout the Older Testament as well in the Newer Testament. There's a consistency here. But what these people are going to try to do is to bring their own additions to supplement in the process when they bring additions to Christ's work, they attempt to dilute 
Christ's work. When I was growing up, my father used to have throughout, scattered throughout the house various magazines and journals wanting his children to pick up and read. There'd be Scientific American over here, there'd be medical journals over here, and he evidently loved National Geographic. He wanted us to have a broad understanding of the world. And I still remember there was one National Geographic article, tongue-in-cheek. Unconfirmed reports state that the University of Florida entomologists have succeeded in mating a praying mantis with a termite thereby producing a bug that says grace before starting to eat your house. <laughs> National Geographic. Now what we have here is this. People are talking religiously, but they're offering counterfeit grace. Now, what do you do with this? Where do you go with this? How do you address this? You're up now to verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. Camp on that. Paul and Barnabas enter into no small dissension. In my early years in Wisconsin, I became interim superintendent of the Forest Lakes District, over 100 churches, free churches, Wisconsin, upper state, upper portion of Michigan, UP. And so after I was done speaking on Sunday nights here, I'd pack up and head off to Stevens Point early Monday morning meet up with a friend who would become a pastor here, Mark Steele, go over the agenda I would have for, for the people in the meeting, and we'd run a six- to seven-hour meeting. I'd have to get back for the elder or deacon meetings Monday night, so it was a long day. But part of the responsibilities of the superintendent, for me it was interim superintendent, never became superintendent, stayed senior pastor here was there would be disagreements and challenges and dissensions in various churches. And so it was my primary responsibility then to have to step in, sort through, and bring biblical resolution to wherever tensions might be arising. I remember one breakfast setting where I had one friend of mine, Ken Moberg, who became the future superintendent of the Forest Lakes District sitting next to me here, and I had Mark Steele on the other side here taking notes as I was thinking out loud. And I said, here's how we're going to have to begin to approach this. When I step into these kinds of settings, we're going to have to ask ourselves, are we dealing here with matters of biblical truth or personal preferences? Second question. Are we dealing with God's revealed will or someone's claim to simply have inside information of knowing God's will? Third question. Is what I'm walking into an issue that we would consider primary 
Or is it something that we would consider to be nothing more than secondary? Finally, does this have eternal value, this debate? Does this debate, does this dissension deal with ultimate issues? Will have something to do with the eternal destinies of people? And then with my sleeves rolled up, have to head off and deal with some of these things. Now, this is what the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are going to have to think through. You're in verse 2. They had no small dissension and debate with them. This had to do with good grace. Now, the evil one covertly is maneuvering here to separate the teachers, Paul and Barnabas, from this young church. My first 15 years were devoted to church planting. Know the significance of being able to provide sound biblical teaching and theology. To be able to build people up in the faith, leading people to Christ. What happens when Paul and Barnabas have got to leave and head off toward Jerusalem? Will these people stay put and then try to bring about dissension within this young dynamic group of believers? Well, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, because they're dealing with ultimate issues here, real grace, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders, you see, with this question. The question of what is real grace? What is true salvation? Onwards. You're now up to verse 3, aren't you? They're going to make their way towards what you and I know as the Jerusalem Council. In verse 3, you and I are told that being sent on their way, so they are representatives now of the church in Antioch. They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. Let's pause and take a look at Phoenicia and Samaria, can we? Say we want to, in our next Israel tour, make our way there. Well, in Phoenicia, archaeological finds await you. You'll be able to reflect upon what Paul was saying about the great stories of grace that God was producing in the lives of people. But you're not going to stay put, are you, in Phoenicia? You want to make your way furthermore to Samaria. So let's head over to Samaria. Remember Jesus, woman at the well, how Jesus was tilling the soil for that time in which Philip would eventually be ministering that very region, you see, before launching off to share the good news with the Ethiopian eunuch. You're pondering all that took place there. The grace stories that were unfolding. And what does Luke the physician have to say about the stories? They're describing in detail, not summary form, detail, 
the conversion of the Gentiles. All throughout the Old Testament, you have examples of conversions of Gentiles. Think of the story of Naaman. Think of back in the days in which Rahab was exposed to the work that God was doing through the Israelite people. The Jews were meant to be channels of grace, not mere reservoirs of truth. And so now what Paul and Barnabas are doing is that they are they are building up a sense of enthusiasm, a sense of excitement as to what God is doing at work in their various studies. Do you do that with people? Is it just a, a pretty boring Christian experience, or is there a dynamic where you're talking about the joy of salvation that people are finding as they come to Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord and Awana, vacation Bible schools, youth group, equip, on and on we go, you see. And this was, this was something that caught the attention of the great expositor G. Campbell Morgan back in London at Westminster Chapel where there was a soldier who approached him prior generations. said he'd give anything to believe that God would forgive his sins. Quote, but I cannot believe he will forgive me if I just turn to him. It's too cheap. Unquote. Morgan was an extraordinarily wise man in the scriptures. You know what he said? Dr. Morgan said to him, you were working in the mine today. How did you get out of the pit? And the man responded, the way I usually do. I got into the cage, was pulled to the top. Morgan, and how much did you pay to come out of the pit? The man, I didn't pay anything. Weren't you afraid to put your trust in that cage? Was it too cheap? The man replied, and we're told that his eyes got real big. It was cheap for me, but it cost the company a lot of money to sink that shaft. And the man saw the light. The infinite price of grace. Christ paid it so that we might experience the unmerited grace that is found in a dynamic relationship with God through Christ, you see. Oh, there's a price. But the price is paid at the cross, not by human works. Now, the danger was that in the Antiochian experience of that young church, is that when these false teachers arrive from the scene and the evil one subtly and covertly chose false teachers from the region of Judea because it looks so close to the epicenter of what all things about Jesus are about. 
that when they would appear on the scene, they would offer a supplement to grace, human works. But what you and I find is that over the course of time, the supplement becomes the substitute. And this is how the evil one works. Now, what you have to do, if you're coming out of a certain religious tradition, where you had that moment where your eyes were open to real good grace, to ask, well, where did they supplement in my prior setting? Grace. Where before long, the supplement became the substitute. Well, now, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are savvy to this line of reasoning. And they know the covert efforts of the evil one who would continuously bring dissension into the church. Just think Ananias and Sapphira in the early stages of the book of Acts. He would work covertly and he would work overtly, getting people away from what matters most, the ultimate issues of life, sin and salvation. So they arrive on the scene. Don't they? You're up to verse 4. He came to Jerusalem. Where all things about Jesus' finished work would be parceled out, thought through, discussed again and again. Notice the response. Notice, notice the welcome mat. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And notice what we are told next. They declared all that God had done with them. It doesn't read, and they declared all that they did for God. Pause. For us to be cutting edge in matters of grace, all about God. What God is doing, not what we are doing for God. It starts with God, ends with God. We are to be the vehicles, we are to be the channels, but God is the source of, from him, through him, to him are all things. They declared all that God had done with them. Do you feel, do you sense, do you pick up that the humility that is found here. These men are being greatly used by God. Paul is a brilliant man, equivalent of two doctorates in today's culture. But there is such a humility here. There is such a God-centeredness here. God is going to get the glory. But then Luke, he's a brilliant writer. He's going to offer you a contrast. It's the letter, it's the word B-U-T. After this tremendous grace story has been articulated, we're told, but some believers, mark that, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, what I want you to spot in verse 5 is that 
Those that are opposing what Paul has just articulated are, first of all, believers. The second thing I want you to notice here is that they are believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now, build a bridge from that time period to 2020 living. If you and I are going to carry on what I would call good grace conversations, good grace dialogue, understand the background of the person, where they're coming from. They might be saved by grace, but they might be bringing baggage into their, into their new grace experience. Baggage that might have to be released somewhere along the way. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, number one, it is necessary to circ- circumcise them, and two, to order them to keep the law of Moses. <laughs> now, I want you to distinguish between the group of verse 1, who were false teachers, unsaved religionists, and there, these people in Jerusalem, in verse 5, who are saved, but they are part of the party of the Pharisees. Supplements, adding to, unlike the Sadducees, who would subtract from. And these were the people who needed to understand clear, unmistakable grace to be able to articulate it well. Can you? Stories told that when Thomas Jefferson and his companions were traveling across country on horseback, they came to a river, banks, swollen, overflowing, downpour. Rivers washed away the bridge. Rider says that each rider is forced to ford the river on horseback, fighting for his life against the rapid currents. And the very real possibility of death threatened each rider, causing a, a traveler who was not part of the group to step aside, watch. And after several had plunged in and made it to the other side, the stranger asked President Jefferson if he would ferry him across the river. And the president agreed without hesitation. Man climbed on. Shortly after, two of them made it across. Stranger slid off the back of the saddle, said, thank you. When one of the group then came up and said, tell me, why did you select the president of the United States to ask this favor? And the man was stunned. He said he had no idea that it was the president who had helped him. But get this. All I know, he said, is that on some of your faces was written the answer, no. But on the president's face was written the answer, yes. Now, what the Apostle Paul is about to face is the tension between the inclusivist and the exclusivist in matters of law and relationship to grace. What's he going to do? How does he proceed? Well, we said we're going to start with that when the essence of salvation is being opposed, we respond to the opponents of God's grace wisely, verses 1 through 5. But now, secondly, when the essence of salvation is being opposed, we're to present the evidence of God's grace 
clearly. And watch how this begins to unfold. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. They went into closed session. This is a separate meeting now. Now, there have been a lot of what I will call church councils throughout history. This is different. This is the only church council that had the, had the apostles present. The issue's grace. It's got to get resolved. In verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Good for you, Peter. As far as I recall, this is the last time Peter takes a stand in his public ministry. Twenty years have passed since the days of Pentecost. But now all heads are turning as this leader of the twelve now, the venerable Peter, steps forward. And notice how he begins. Brothers. That's an extraordinary statement. He's saying to the believing Pharisaic people, brothers, he is saying to those that are not part of the customs of Pharisees, brothers, but he is saying it among all those who put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, but are still going to have to work through some of their theology and the baggage they've carried with them. Brothers. Notice now what he does next. He uses a sense of shared knowledge, which you have to do when you're addressing matters of dissension. You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And I can imagine the heads begin to turn. Yeah. And we heard stories about Peter sharing the gospel with that man by the name of Cornelius in Caesarea. Gentiles coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And we were commissioned, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. And there in Antioch, they're so well positioned with the diversity of the ethnic groups to do that very thing. You can almost see the heads turning back and forth at that point. The dynamism of grace getting unpacked in front of their very eyes. Verse 8. And God. I can almost see now, Peter, he doesn't start with himself or others. God knows the heart. Pause. Remember the first uh, two of our children, when they, they received stethoscopes, watched the bigness of their eyes. Those in the medical field, you know, you know that moment when you got yours. There's this great book by John Stone, a cardiologist. It's called In the Country of Hearts. Describes this scene in Boston. I and my older son, a medical student in Boston, spent the morning at the hospital decoding the heart sounds that emanated from a wondrous electronic teaching mannequin called Harvey. 
Harvey, Harvey can be programmed to simulate a, a wide variety of murmurs and pulses. I watched my son, young doctor, process of discovery that lies before him. He's going to learn the heart. It'll take some time. Only with time. Only after moving the stethoscope like a metal detector over the landscape of countless hearts does one truly learn the skill of being still and listen. Such training of the ear comes only with experience. And I value the road ahead. He becomes a student of the heart. God is the scholar of the heart. God knows the heart. And now Peter says, God who knows the heart, he's the ultimate cardiologist, bore witness to them. doesn't say, I bore witness to them. Bore witness to them. By giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, not only is he dealing with shared knowledge, now he's dealing with shared experience. We got the Holy Spirit, but so did the Gentiles. We are one. Can you just see the walls of division collapsing? Do you feel a grace rising? Do you sense a unity developing? Just as he did to us. Verse 9. And he made no distinction between us and them as the walls come down, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So now, Application time. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? It's not like you're putting Paul and Barnabas to the test. Why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of, oh, isn't this good? The disciples. He's calling believing Gentiles. Disciples which is what the people in Jerusalem viewed themselves as. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Question mark. A rhetorical question, by the way. Now grace breaks in. Don't you love the next phrase? But we believe, not I. We believe. I can hear the newsboys now. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit, and he's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that he conquered death. We believe in the resurrection. He's coming back again. We believe. So, let our faith be more than anthems, greater than the songs we sing, and in our weakness and temptations. We believe. We believe. And now this aged but strong disciple, Peter, stands and says, we believe. 
that we will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, comma, I can almost sense the pause, just as they will. As the walls come down and the oneness is experienced. Gerald sits here tells of the life-changing moment. A car slammed into his family vehicle. He lost his mother. He lost his wife. He lost his four-year-old daughter. And he grappled with the question, why me? Yet he goes on to tell us, over time, Sitzer began to question the assumption that he had a right to a life that is completely fair in a fallen world. And although he did not deserve their deaths, he thought, he also knew that he did not deserve their presence either. And so in an extraordinary article, in the midst of loss, he penned this statement of grace. On the face of it, he wrote, living in a perfectly fair world appeals to me. But deeper reflection makes me wonder. Why, in such a world as that, I might never experience tragedy, but neither would I experience grace. The problem of expecting to live in a perfectly fair world is that there is no grace in that world. For grace is grace only when it is undeserved. And that family is good grace. Let's stand together. So, Father, for any of these services in this building today, and for the wide-ranging congregation through live stream, near and afar, we're praying that you do a work of grace. If there's a religious unbeliever that's tuned in if there's a secularist unbeliever who's tuned in, they share something in common. They both need grace. Show them it's unmerited. It can't be achieved by our supposed goodness. It can't be achieved by our supposed good works. It's all about Jesus. It's about his finished work. It's about grace. May they now put faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. And for those who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but haven't given enough serious thought to what they might have brought in to add to grace, I pray now that they will release that baggage and begin to breathe freely the unmerited favor that is found 
Jesus died for our sins. We neither add to nor subtract from. We give you all the glory for what he did. And for this we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.